2021 has been another memorable year, a year dominated by the global pandemic and, in marked contrast to last year, the discovery of COVID-19 vaccines and treatments in our fight against the virus. With medical advancement came renewed confidence in the economy and the great resignation as people globally began to explore new opportunity. Closer to home, COP26 focused minds on sustainability, while a raft of planning announcements has kept practitioners on their toes. In the courts, the pace has remained steady, with the fallout from the pandemic continuing its dominance in the shape of restructuring and CVAs, pandemic clauses and rental disputes. Telecoms has again made its presence felt with the appeal in Cornerstone Telecommunications Infrastructure Limited versus Compton Beecham Estates, making it all the way to the Supreme Court. Judgment is awaited and perhaps a place in next year's list. However, with no shortage of contenders to choose from for 2021, we have cogitated, debated and formulated our top 10 property law cases from the year. You're listening to Sarah Jackman and Jess Harold, and this is EG's Top 10 Cases of 2021. But first, let us name check a few of the near misses that did not quite make the cut. After appearances in both our 2019 and 2020 lists, Fern versus the Board of Trustees of Tate Gallery arrived at the Supreme Court in December, just too late for a judgment to make it three years in a row. That's another case sure to be in contention next time. As Sarah mentioned, at time of recording, judgment is eagerly anticipated from the Supreme Court in the telecoms case of Compton Beecham. And the same is true of the Court of Appeal in R on the application of rights community action versus Secretary of State for Housing, Communities and Local Government, the high profile challenge to planning changes introduced in response to the pandemic. I can see that one possibly being a classic end of term too late for the list judgment. It happens almost every year, but fingers crossed it does come out in the new year and is eligible for next year's rundown. A pair of Supreme Court judgments just missed out on our hotly contested top 10. TW Logistics Limited versus Essex County Council, in which an Essex key was recognised as a village green. And Ritson Thomas versus Oxfordshire County Council, a hard fought battle over the proceeds of sale of a former school site in Oxfordshire, donated long ago for educational use. Listeners may well have their own strong candidates for inclusion, but without further ado, back to Sarah to begin our countdown. Starting our countdown at number 10 is a Supreme Court decision from early January. It is pandemic related and a case that featured in our fourth spot in 2020. It is, of course, Financial Conduct Authority versus Arch Insurance Limited. FCA was a test case on the applicability of business interruption insurance policies to the circumstances arising out of COVID-19. The urgent litigation had a fast journey through the courts as it involved around 370,000 policyholders who, because of complicated wording, were unsure whether they're entitled to make a claim for business interruption owing to COVID-19. This meant that thousands of claims were put on hold while the case made its journey through the courts. Both the regulator and the insurance industry were seeking guidance from the court on the specific interpretation of the wording of key policies. In January, the Supreme Court backed the regulator, a ruling that boosted the many thousands of policyholders in their bid to secure a payout from their insurance companies for losses during the pandemic and related lockdowns. The judgment was welcomed by the FCA as one that, 
decisively removes many of the roadblocks to claims by policyholders. Stuart Pemble, partner at Mills and Reeve and EG Legal Notes Editor, explains what it means for practitioners. Yeah, so the key takeaway is it all depends on the wording used in the contract. That's, that's fundamentally the point. If you, if you remember, it went to the divisional court. It was rushed through under this financial markets yeah. test case scheme. And it went to the divisional court. And there were three types of clauses they were considering. Um, disease clauses, prevention of access clauses, and hybrid clauses, combination of disease and prevention of access. And the reason that these clauses were relevant is that normal business interruption cover only covers physical damage. Do you have to have one of these extensions? And did the extensions work? The divisional court said that the disease clauses were more likely to bite than prevention of access clauses. And then hybrid clauses would be interpreted depending on which bit of the hybrid you were looking at. The Supreme Court said, oh, no, no, it's uh, um, it's they gave it a wide interpretation. So disease clauses often refer to the outbreak of the disease within a certain radius of the building covered by the policy. And the Supreme Court said, no, every every outbreak of COVID nationally was a contributor to the restrictions the government the government put in place. And so that was that was great news. Of course, everyone's individual case depends on the the actual wording of their policy. In at nine, not one, but two unopposed lease renewal cases from the county courts. Few such cases usually reach the trial stage owing to the time and cost implications involved. But given the issues arising out of the pandemic, WH Smith Retail Holdings Limited versus Commerce Rail Investment Gesselschaft MDH and Poundland Limited versus Top Lane Limited did just that. Prior to COVID-19, very few leases expressly provided for what would happen to the obligation to pay rent and service charges during a lockdown. Now, though, many tenants are understandably reluctant to enter into new leases without sharing some of the risk of further pandemic lockdowns and inserting specific pandemic clauses to reduce or suspend payment of rent. Both WH Smith and Poundland dealt with these pandemic clauses in relation to renewals of leases protected by the Landlord and Tenant Act 1954. If parties are unable to agree the terms of release renewal, Section 35 of the 1954 Act gives the court the jurisdiction to determine them. It is the party proposing the change in lease terms who needs to justify the change as being fair and reasonable in all the circumstances. The facts in the two cases were different. In WH Smith, prior to trial, the parties had agreed most of the terms of the new lease, including the term, but remained in dispute about the level of rent. The parties had also agreed that the new lease should include a pandemic clause, but not what the trigger should be. In Poundland, the parties had already agreed the rent, Uh, The terms in dispute included whether a pandemic clause should be included at all. They resulted in quite different conclusions, with tenants feeling more confident after the WH Smith decision in their prospects of including a pandemic clause and not having to pay an uplift in rent for the benefit of such. The Poundland decision, however, cast doubt on this. If the principle of a clause cannot be agreed, then the tenant will need to satisfy the O'May test to succeed in including a pandemic clause. Aside from the difference in conclusion, they were county court decisions and not, therefore, binding precedent. As Mark Redding and Ros Monk of Mishkondorea state in their article for EG, direction from the higher courts is therefore needed if parties in unopposed lease renewal proceedings are to have greater certainty in relation to the inclusion of pandemic clauses and their effect on rent. We asked Emma Humphreys, partner at Charles Russell Speechleys, for her thoughts on the significance of these cases. 
Well, some parties have tried to use the WH Smith case to say that pandemic clauses should now be standard in renewal leases. Now, the decision doesn't say that, um, given that the parties had already agreed the clause in principle. But it's a useful decision on the question of the appropriate trigger for a pandemic rent reduction where a retailer isn't required to close but is located in a shopping centre situation. In the circumstances of the WH Smith case, the court decided that a 50% rent suspension should apply where non-essential retailers were closed. In my view, the case is actually more interesting for demonstrating the court's approach to assessing rents in difficult circumstances, and I think it's essential reading for any surveyor advising on a lease renewal. Poundland is more key to the question of pandemic clauses in lease renewals under the 1954 Act, because the tenant was asking the court to insert one and so change the lease, hence the application of the OMA test. The court rejected the tenant's request for the pandemic clause, it found that the tenant's evidence was insufficient to demonstrate why the proposed clause was fair and reasonable. And it emphasized that its power to determine renewal lease terms was not so that one party could redesign previously negotiated risks. The big question which remains after these cases, which we may see determined during next year, is whether including a pandemic clause has any effect on rent. The WH Smith case suggests not, but the point wasn't really considered in detail. And so I suspect there is further argument to come. At eight, a Court of Appeal decision from February on service charges, specifically the apportionment of service charges. In Aviva Investors Ground Rent GP Limited versus Williams, the Court of Appeal was asked to consider whether the contractual mechanism for the apportionment of service charges between the landlord and tenant offended section 27A6 of the Landlord and Tenant Act 1985. The case involved a mixed residential and commercial development in Southsea, Hampshire, with 39 long leaseholders required by their leases to pay insurance costs, building services costs and estate costs by way of service charge. The amount payable by each lessee was determined by way of a fixed percentage or such part as the landlord may reasonably determine. Over the years, the landlord had been demanding service charges in different proportions to those stated in the leases. And finally, the lessees objected, arguing that Section 27A6 voided the words or such part as the landlord may reasonably determine, because those words ousted the jurisdiction of the first tier tribunal. If correct, that would restrict the landlord to the fixed percentages in the leases, while the FTT ruled that these words were not void, the upper tribunal disagreed and the landlord took matters to the Court of Appeal, successfully so, as it turned out. The court found that the lease should be read as if it provided for the fixed percentage or such part of, as the FTT may otherwise reasonably determine, transferring the necessary determination of reasonableness from the landlord to the FTT and retaining a degree of flexibility in the apportionment of service charges. Elizabeth Duomo, barrister at Lamb Chambers, and one of our crack team of Legal Notes writers offers her thoughts on the decision. Landlord and tenant 
always find service charges to be a very thorny issue, but without doubt, this is a welcome decision for landlords whose tenants have similar provisions in their leases. The Courts of Appeals approach provides a degree of flexibility, I think, in the apportionment of service charges, so long as it's remembered that the jurisdiction of the first year tribunal should not be ousted. This might not be so welcome for tenants who prefer if a landlord can be um, kept to the fixed percentages in their lease. But this decision will definitely be welcome one for landlords. Taking the number seven slot comes the combined Supreme Court appeals in Rossendale Borough Council and another versus Hurstwood Properties A Limited and others, raising the ever thorny problem of empty property rates and the increasingly ingenious schemes through which owners seek to avoid them. In Hurstwood, the property owners granted leases to special purpose vehicles which did not have any assets or liabilities and did not trade. In due course, those SPVs were either put into voluntary liquidation, leaving the two local local authorities in the appeals unable to recover the business rates due in respect of the properties, or dissolved, leaving the liability for rates to vest in the Crown. The councils attacked these rates avoidance schemes, claiming the SPV leases were shams, but met with defeat in the Court of Appeal. The court there ruled that they were not shams because the SPVs had the legal right to possession of the properties. However, these test cases went to the Supreme Court, with 55 similar disputes said to be waiting in the wings and millions of pounds at stake. Deciding the case on assumed facts, the Supreme Court found in favour of the local authorities, finding that this type of scheme misused legal processes relating to insolvency and dissolution, that control of the properties remained with the landlord at all times, and that the leases had not transferred the requisite entitlement to possession, which the court described as the badge of ownership triggering liability for business rates. As is so often the case when it comes to empty property rates, we asked Roger Cohen, senior counsel at Brian Cave Leighton Paisner, for his unique perspective on the decision in Hurstwood. When my late father-in-law discussed where he wanted to be buried, he said of his chosen location, to be buried in that cemetery, that's the way to live. When I read about empty business rates, it seems to me a living death. Where empty rates are due, something has gone wrong. Someone is not making a living. In 2021-22, government expects to allow £943 million in empty property rate reliefs, the highest ever figure. The highest ever figure. Empty rates hurt. That is why so much energy goes into empty property rates avoidance and why some aggressive structures have emerged, as in the two structures in this case. One version was slammed as an abuse of the legal process and may in circumstances involve the commission of a criminal offence. What the Supreme Court did was novel in rating. Why was the SPV not the owner or the person, quotes, entitled to possession, close quotes? Because the owner is the person entitled to real or practical control over whether or not the property was occupied. This case has reduced the options available to the ratepayer owner who are seeking to avoid empty property rates. There do remain options, but it's now that much harder for an owner to give their empty rates liability a decent burial. At six, a case that made it into fifth place in last year's top 10. It returns to our top 10 this year following an outing to the Court of Appeal. That case, Capital Park Leeds PLC versus Global Radio Services Limited. The case itself concerned vacant possession and whether the tenant who wanted to exercise the break clause in its lease had complied with the provision in its lease to provide 
vacant possession of the premises on the break date. Often the source of dispute in these types of cases is whether the tenant has extracted everything that should have been removed to comply with the provisions in its lease. But in this case, a landlord claimed that its tenant had removed too much from the property. In the High Court, the argument centred on the definition of the premises, with the judge finding that the tenant had not given the landlord back the premises because so many of the landlord's fixtures, which form part of the premises, were missing. In finding for the landlord at first instance, the High Court raised a few eyebrows. In July, the Court of Appeal overturned that decision and Lord Justice Newey, who spoke for the court, accepted that although the building was left in a dire state, this did not preclude the valid exercise of the break clause. John Rowling, technical partner at TFT Consultants, summarises why the case is of significance for dilapidations professionals. As a building surveyor, Capital Park against Global Radio was obviously a very significant case when it comes to our dealing with uh, with break clauses and particularly the vacant session obligation. In the first instance, the judgment was going to cause a lot of problems for tenants on the basis that they would suddenly have to uh, know exactly what the demise premises were due to be at lease end which perhaps would mean exactly what they were like at the start of the lease, which is often information which is lost over time. So suddenly um, tenants were on the back foot until such time as the, the Court of Appeal judgment came through, which certainly has clarified things for uh, for tenants who have a vacant possession obligation. It's clarified that all they need to do is get rid of uh, chattels, people and interest. So from our perspective as building surveyors, that means chattels, and it also means making sure that there are no builders on site, for example, and builders rubbles, rubble. It doesn't get rid of the, the inherent uh, difficulty about working out what's a chattel and what's a tenant's fixture. But at least we know uh, that we're not having to stand on the head of a pin and try and remember or find out exactly what we need to give back. It's just the premises as they are at that time without any chattels, people or interest. So much easier for tenants, much easier for practitioners and hopefully um, we'll be able to uh, deal with vacant possession breaks much more easily in the future. As may already have become apparent, it has been a year in which similar cases seem to have come in twos and threes. Uh, and our number five slot is a further prime example. Bank of New York Mellon International Limited versus Cine UK Limited and other appeals, and Commerce Real Investment Gesselschaft MBH v TFS Stores Limited, both decided within days of each other by High Court Masters in April, each arose out of the unique circumstances of COVID-19. With conventional means of commercial rent arrears recovery curtailed by moratoria, each involved a straightforward claim for summary judgment for arrears of rent that accumulated during the pandemic. We have notionally given fifth slot to Bank of New York Mellon, the more thorough judgment of the two from Master Dagnall, which involved household name tenants, including Cineworld, Sports Direct and Mecca Bingo. But many of the arguments raised overlapped with Commerce Real, and analysis often combines the two. The tenants raised a raft of defences to the claims, which they maintained warranted a full trial of the action. These included reliance on government guidance, including the code of practice that encourages negotiation and cooperation between landlords and tenants. The availability to landlords of the types of insurance coverage endorsed by the Supreme Court in Arch, and even frustration. But the masters in both decisions offered robust decisions firmly in favour of the landlords, which Guy Featherston Hall QC and Elizabeth Fitzgerald, writing for us swiftly after they were handed down, suggested leave little hope for tenants facing similar claims. 
discussing Bank of New York Mellon in particular, they said the unhesitating rejection of those arguments for the second time in a week and at summary judgment level will no doubt provide much comfort to landlords in a property market characterised by difficulties of rent collection over the course of last year. Now, sharing his own view on the impact of the two cases for us is Mark Sefton QC. The landlords here won on everything except on permission to appeal. And in practical terms, that means that there is still a deadlock. But landlords still cannot get enforceable judgments against tenants. Tenants still have a negotiating position. It is only going to be once the appeals are heard next year and once the new arbitration scheme comes into force that things might finally start to move forward. In at four is a case that not only goes right to the heart of one of the big themes from 2021, tenant restructuring, but gives rise to possibly the greatest tongue twister of the year, the cross-class cram-down, a phrase that describes a restructuring tool introduced by the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act 2020. The case in question, Re-Virgin Active Holdings Limited and others. In this case, one of a number of insolvency-related decisions to reach court this year, Jim Group Virgin Active asked the High Court to approve a restructuring plan devised in conjunction with its shareholders and secure creditors and containing compromises typically found in company voluntary arrangements, which would enable it to survive but would leave many of its landlords who were separated into different classes considerably worse off. Many of the landlords opposed the restructuring plan. They complained that they were being required to bear a disproportionate part of the financial pain and, having been excluded from the negotiating table, that they were being eaten for lunch. But legislation enables the court to impose a restructuring plan on one or more classes of dissenters if two conditions are satisfied. The court approved the proposals, which made use of techniques typically used in CVAs, because they offered the dissenting landlords a better return than administration. Commenting on the proposals, Julie Gatenyu, partner at CMS, said, This was a very important decision, as it was the first time the court considered use of the new cross-class cram-down tool to compromise lease liabilities in the same way CVAs have. We now have a good understanding of the court's approach at the convening and sanction hearings, of the various issues which arose on provision of information and expert evidence, and the court's findings on satisfaction of the conditions for cross-class cram-down and how it approached exercise of its discretion to sanction the plan. And this was incredibly important as it will really help inform landlords to decide if there are potential grounds for challenging a plan and on what steps and the approach that landlords need to take to be able to evidence grounds for any challenge. Importantly, we learn from the decision that unless landlords are in the money, then whatever the relevant alternative is for the company, if the plan isn't approved, then any challenge is unlikely to succeed. So that has to be a key focus for landlords considering any challenge. So fundamental is the problem of unpaid rent arrears that the master's decisions in Bank of New York Mellon and Commerce Real may well have earned a higher slot in our countdown than number five, were it not for a subsequent High Court decision on the issue in September. Taking the bronze medal position at number three then comes London Trocadero 2015 LLP versus Picture House Cinemas Limited and others. Not only by virtue of being a decision of a deputy high court judge of the business and property courts, Robin Boss, but also as it involves a somewhat iconic London venue. 
Cinema chain Picture House, it transpired, had not paid rent on its flagship at London's Trocadero since 2020, building up some £2.9 million in rent arrears. It argued, based on the devastating lockdowns that closed cinemas nationally during the pandemic, that it would be uncommercial to expect it to pay during periods when the premises could not be used to screen films, maintaining that the ability to do so was fundamental to the basis of the lease. However, siding with the landlord, the judge said that the case law supported a long-standing principle that an inability of a tenant to use premises for the purposes intended at the time the lease was granted will not provide a defence to a claim for the payment of rent. Like the masters before him in the earlier cases, he awarded summary judgment in favour of the landlord. Further confirmation, if it were needed, that tenants face an uphill struggle to persuade a court that they should not have to pay rent accrued during the pandemic. Here, Nick Trombert, QC of Selborne Chambers, who acted for the successful landlord, gives his view on why it is one of the key cases of 2021. London Trocadero 2015 LLP and Picture House Cinemas Limited was the first case uh, to do with COVID rent arrears, which came before uh, a deputy high court judge. Um, it concerned particularly high profile premises, um, on Piccadilly Circus with a particularly high profile cinema tenant, Picture House Cinemas. Um, the case is significant in the way it deals with the implication of terms and in particular also the failure of basis argument. Um, the judge resolved the case in favour of the claimant landlord entering summary judgment in the landlord's favour. There is now an appeal pending which uh, we hope will come before the Court of Appeal in February next year. And now we reach the penultimate spot. In at number two is another of the year's major cases that didn't involve the pandemic. It was Hart versus Large. This was a case in which the Court of Appeal upheld a ruling ordering a surveyor to pay almost £400,000 in damages to a couple whose £1.2 million dream home in Devon was plagued with leaks. Lord Justice Coulson acknowledged that the case was unusual and found that due to its specific set of circumstances, the High Court had been correct to use a different way to calculate damages than normal. The views from the cliffside home were said to be magnificent, but the property could not have been more exposed to the elements. In the decision upheld by the Appeal Court, the judge found that the surveyor, large, should have recommended obtaining a professional consultant's certificate. As Large didn't, the judge found he was negligent. Jen Lehman, partner at Property Elite and EG's APC series editor, rounds up on the significance of the case for us. The Hart and Large case sets a really important precedent for residential surveyors. Um, I remember when the case first came out and I thought it was really interesting actually to speak to some surveyors in the industry to find out about what they've been doing to deal with the precedent set by the case. Um, the initial reaction uh, was perhaps one of anxiety and fear, uh, but the outcome of the case seems to have really promoted um, plenty of positive change since. Um, surveyors are focusing on risk management through initially advising on the correct survey level and limitations. So obviously explaining what they will and won't do and explaining the differences between a level two home survey and level three building survey. They're also writing additional reporting clauses relating to PCCs and ensuring that clients are advised clearly. Uh, this is often through a call with the client post-survey to really highlight the key takeaways and risks. 
The emphasis has also been on ensuring that clients and their legal advisors can take the right steps to make an informed property purchase, particularly where property has been extended or altered or certain features such as a damp proof course were not immediately visible upon inspection. And finally, we can reveal our number one case of 2021. And it will surprise nobody to learn that we are returning once more to the pandemic theme. The summer brought a spate of decisions relating to company voluntary arrangements and restructurings, as noted earlier on with Virgin Active. Together, they have been the subject of many articles and indeed podcasts this year. We have had Caraway Guildford nominee A Limited versus Regis UK Limited involving the Regis Hairdressing Group CVA and Young versus Nero Holdings Limited involving the Cafe Nero CVA, as well as the abandoned challenge to the National Car Parks CVA. Each offers its lessons to landlords and tenants alike, but to represent the CVA challenge slot at the top of our tree, we have selected Lazari Properties 2 Limited and others versus New Look Retailers Limited and others a case that exemplifies the objection that landlords so often have to retail and leisure CVAs that seem to leave only them, or perhaps them and business rates billing authorities, out of pocket. Here, landlords, including the owners of Manchester's Trafford Centre and Edinburgh's Fort Canard Retail Park, challenged the New Look CVA approved by a creditor's vote, arguing that it was unfair. Mr Justice Zaccaroli acknowledged that a CVA imposing long-term rent reductions without an option to terminate might be unfairly prejudicial if achieved by votes from creditors who do not suffer the same treatment. However, here, the landlords had been offered a commercial choice between terminating the leases or allowing them to continue at reduced rents and on modified terms. The CVA was not imposed on a minority by a self-interested majority. The landlords, however, do have some hope the case will be going to appeal early next year and seems likely to retain its place in 2022's top 10. For now, though, let's bring things to a close by asking Matt Ditchburn, partner and head of real estate disputes at Hogan Lovells and the new chair of the Property Litigation Association, for his thoughts on New Look and the CVA landscape as it stands at the end of 2021. So New Look was a case about the lawfulness of retailer CVAs and what's controversial about them is that they predominantly compromise landlord claims, but they're voted through by all of the creditors, including those that aren't impacted at all. And what happened in New Look is they put forward a CVA which saw their stores either closed or, or converted to turnover rents. And it was voted through not on the strength of the landlord's votes, but by the company's note holders. They had a huge vote totaling about £275 million, even though they were entirely unimpaired by the CVA. A number of landlords didn't like this, and so they challenged it. Uh, and that judgment came out in May this year. And really, that was the culmination of several years of landlords objecting to the way that these retailer CVAs were operating. The judge said in the end that there were, in fact, strong grounds to say that any CVA would be unfair and therefore ought to be revoked if it compromised one group of creditors like landlords but was approved by the larger votes of unaffected or just very differently treated uh, creditors he called this vote swamping and that's really quite a significant step nobody before has ever said that that sort of voting arrangement would be unfair in a cva and really that is how landlord cvas have operated for a long time but unfortunately for the landlords in this case, the judge decided that the note holders were in fact impaired because they'd had their debts swapped for equity in a separate scheme of arrangement. Uh, and so the landlords didn't succeed in revoking the CVA, but they have appealed and that's coming to the Court of Appeal in March next year. 
So all that aside, I think it will be really interesting to see how the market reacts to this decision. Tenants will no longer be able just to rely upon the votes of all of their non-landlord creditors to get through a CVA, which is designed just to compromise landlord claims. So what does that mean? It might mean that CVAs going forward have to be more balanced and treat all of the creditors more equally, or it just might mean that we get far fewer of them. And that concludes our top 10 cases for the memorable year that has been 2021. A huge thanks to you all for tuning in today and for following us throughout the year at egi.co.uk and of course through the hard copy of EG. We will be back in January with our predictions for 2022 and in the meantime, wish you all a very happy Christmas and New Year. It's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from her.